as it is in the business world, so also amongst family units and in every friendship, there is a struggle for power. Everyone is trying to get on top, to be on the top of the hierarchy in the family unit, regardless of birth order, or even amongst friends, an unsaid desire for influence and power amongst friends. In these power games or power plays, it often manifests itself in competition and comparison between siblings, in-laws, cousins, parents and child, and any other relationship that makes us a family unit or friends. And these power games start often very young. In Lisa McKay's article, she writes about her own child proclaiming to her once, If you don't cook me pizza for dinner, I'm not going to love you anymore. This line was delivered, she writes, to me convincingly last week by my five-year-old son. He's usually cuddly and all sorts of adorable, but recently he's starting to experiment with power dynamics, and he really likes pizza. So he pulled out the biggest gun in his arsenal, the weapon of withholding love. Because he is five, Lisa writes, this didn't bother me. I stayed calm. In fact, I had to work hard not to laugh at him. It's easy to stay calm when it's a five-year-old who's pulling a power play or trying on emotional blackmail for the first time for size. You know they love you. You know they don't really mean what they're saying at the moment. But it's usually easy to come up with a firm but loving response that lets them know that what they've just said is not okay. Now, it's a completely different story when someone you're dating or someone you're married to, a grown-up, pulls out a grown-up version of the same maneuver, emotional blackmail, perhaps, to gain the advantage in power. As we continue our home series, looking at the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis, we want to see that playing power games in relationships which cause great dysfunction and messiness in life, it's really a silly game to play because there's only one winner in this game and that's going to be God. And yet, why do we continue to play these power games in our own little worlds and in our family units? Let's unpack this. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 32. We're going to take a look at verses 1 to 32. Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 32. I'm going to read now Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. As we talked about last week, Jacob had settled his issues with Laban, and he's now on his way back to Canaan. The one unsettled issue for Jacob after 20 years is still that issue of whether Esau is still angry at him, so angry that he wants to kill his brother. Now, to encourage Jacob on his journey back to Canaan, the Bible tells us God allows Jacob to see into the spiritual realm again, to see the angels of God encamped all around him, to remind Jacob that God is still with him. This is similar to when God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6 to encourage them that 
they were not alone in their fight against the Syrians. If you remember when Jacob left Canaan in his flight from Esau, God also gave him the privilege of being able to see into the angelic realm. And therefore he called that place Bethel, meaning house of God. Now seeing all the angels around him, he called the place Mahanaim, meaning two camp, means there was his physical camp and there was a angelic camp that God surrounded his physical camp with to remind him that God protected him. It must have brought such great encouragement and assurance to Jacob as he headed back to Canaan. He was uncertain of the reception he would receive from his brother Esau. But it would have served to encourage him to know that God's angels were with him, although unseen. This short introduction to this chapter lays the foundation of the general principle that will carry through throughout the chapter. And it is this general principle that I want you to note. God is the true source of power and strength. God is the true source of all power and strength. So it is in Him that we should place our trust. It is in Him that we are reminded that God stands with us. He will help us if only we allow Him. Now I know in our minds we know this truth the truth that God is the true source of all power and strength. But we waver in its application in our lives, just as we were going to see that Jacob wavers in bringing what he knows to be true to live out through his heart. And that's why, although we know that God is in total power and in control of not only our lives but around the world, we still continue to play power games in our family units and amongst our friends which causes, of course, great dysfunction and messiness in life. So by understanding some principles, I hope we will discontinue playing these games. Continue with me by taking a look at verses 3 to 6. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Jacob sends messengers to Esau, saying that, I'm coming back, I, I want to return, and I have lots of gifts to give you to make up in order perhaps I could find favor in your eyes. This is Jacob's makeup gifts to Esau. In a way, he's thinking, I, I may have taken your blessings from Isaac, our father, but I want to make it up to you now. Now, in a way, Jacob is also showing Esau that although he left by himself, he has returned as a very powerful and wealthy man. He has lots of flocks and servants to give Esau. But his messengers return and announce that Esau is actually coming to meet his brother Jacob with 400 men. What you see here is the power play, the power game of strength. Jacob plays his cards thinking that he can win over Esau with lots of gifts 
Esau matches in this power game by coming with 400 men. And let me stop here and note that in life, when we struggle for power, we play game number one. And here's power game number one. I am stronger than you. It's the I am stronger than you game. We try to show our strength. We try to flex our muscles and show that we're more powerful. We're stronger. And by being stronger, that that makes us more powerful. And this can be manifested in various different ways by showing others our abilities, our influence, showing others that we have people on our side. For students, it's higher grades. For others, it's titles, awards. For the corporate type, it's the accomplishments. It all boils down to, I'm stronger than you, therefore I'm better than you. And if I'm better than you, I'm certainly more powerful than you. Jacob and Esau are playing this game. Who is the strongest? Look at verse 7 to 8 with me. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and the herds and camels, into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape. Jacob realizes he is outmanned by Esau in terms of strength, so he divides his camp into two, thinking if Esau attacks one camp of his family, then at least he has one half to escape with. Realizing that he is out-leveraged in the power game of who is stronger than the other, what does he do? He prays. Look at verses 9 to 12. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitudes. Jacob delivers a very sincere prayer to God. This is the first prayer recorded of Jacob in the Bible. It's often in our times of fears and crises that we finally call out and we pray to God. Now in his prayer, Jacob reminds God of his promises and then acknowledges his humility and recognizes that he doesn't deserve all that he has. Then appeals for God to deliver him, acknowledging his own fears in verse 11 and then claiming the covenanted promise of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a model prayer. Now, I don't want to put a negative spin on Jacob's right action to come to the Lord in prayer, but it also, in his action, highlights a human tendency that we engage in prayer only when we are in desperate need. When we are in need, when we can no longer rely upon ourselves, we often seek help in higher places. We often seek help of friends in higher places. 
people with greater authority or power, people with influence, people who can get things done. And Jacob, realizing he has no one else to turn to, turns to God. That's why we mentioned everyone wants God to be on their side. Because when God is on their side, they feel more assured because now they have a higher authority in which to claim justice and justification for. People turn to God often only in desperate times without fully questioning their motives, we should ask, why do they turn to God at the end and not at the beginning? Perhaps it's only when they realize they don't have power to do it themselves, and so they look for one with more power and authority. Now, it's wonderful that we recognize God's sovereign authority in prayer, but sadly, people only use God when they need Him. And in some ways, that is power play number two. They are playing power game number two. Guess who I know? Guess who I know? If I can get God on my side, then I'll feel more confident. Guess who's on my side? Hey, I've got God on my side. This is God's will. And if God's on my side, then you can't trump God. If He's on my side, then I'm going to win. A form of this game is the name-dropping game. We tell people who we know. We tell people who we are related to. And the point of telling people who we know and who we are related to is to tell the others, don't mess with me. I'm a powerful person because of the people I know, because of my network. And the more influential people I know, the more powerful I am. When I was a teenager many decades ago, there were very few tans living in my part of the U.S., which is Texas, North Texas specifically. Because in America, it was mostly Mandarin or Cantonese speaking, and so the Chinese character for tan was often pronounced chen or chen, written out in Romanized English. And the Hokkien tan was rarely used often only for immigrants from Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines. For many years, we were the only tans in the phone book. And so, my friend and I would often fool a lot of people in North Texas. It was during the time when the book Joy Luck Club was a bestseller in America, written by Amy Tan. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for many weeks. And when it came out, my friend and I, would often game the system to try to get free food. We would go to a restaurant, and my friend would tell the server, do you know who's sitting across from me? The server would say no. He is the son of Amy Tan, the writer of the Joy Luck Club. When they would ask for my ID to prove that I was indeed the son of Amy Tan, I would show them my ID, and of course, it said Stephen Tan. And they don't know the children's name of Amy Tan. And we would often get complimentary appetizers and desserts on the house because the son of the famous author, Amy Tan, was eating there. It's a very powerful game. We play this guess-who-I-know game. And we play it all the time so that we can get people to think we're more powerful than we are. And we recruit God 
to play this game with us when we try to claim God on our side. Look at verses 13 to 21. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. And he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put some distance between each successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. And he himself lodged that night in the camp. Jacob was going to give Esau more than 500 livestock. Shows you indeed that Jacob was indeed a wealthy man, a very wealthy man, if 500 could only be a, a gift for someone. And Jacob would send his gifts in waves, not all at once, but in waves to impress Esau. As these waves of livestock came to meet Esau, stopped by Esau, Esau would ask, whose sheep, whose livestock do these belong to? And Jacob's servants were to say, these are Jacob's gifts for Esau. And Jacob is coming behind. Now, remember, Esau doesn't know that Jacob is scared. And Jacob is wanting to show that he has lots of resources. He is very rich and wealthy. And the guy who owns all of these waves of livestock being given to Esau is coming behind Imagine five waves of more than a hundred animals. What is the game that is being played here? Game number three, power game number three, the I have more than you game. The I have more than you game. And if I have more than you, then that makes me more powerful than you. That's often how we think, isn't it? And you see that notion being played out in verse 20. I will appease him. I'll try to buy him off. If he sees all of this stuff, knows how powerful I am, then perhaps he will accept me and and no longer want to make issue with me for something that happened 20 years ago. For example, if hypothetically I were to send you gifts, I were to send you a new phone this week, and then next week I I sent you a, a new laptop, then after that I sent you a new television, and then the week after I sent you a refrigerator, and then I sent you the keys to a brand new car. And then I send you the following week the deeds to your new condo. Then I send you the following week the deed to your new house. If you were to ask, who is sending me this stuff? Oh, the messenger replies, the one who sends you this stuff will reveal himself soon. There will be two things you think about him. He's very rich, and this person who's sending me this stuff must be very powerful. 
Jacob is playing a bit of a psychological game here as well too. I'll do it in two waves, three waves, four waves, five waves to impress upon Esau that the one who's coming behind this waves is very powerful. Now in the next part of the story, God will show that he doesn't need to play these games, but if he plays these games, he will always win. And he's going to play these games with Jacob. Look at me at verses 22 to 23. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Jacob was ready to cross the Jordan River from the east to return home. But before that, he had to cross over the river Jabbok. And so he sent his family ahead. And that night before he crossed it, he met a man. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. The night before he was to cross the Jabbok River, he met a man. And they had a wrestling match that lasted all night until the morning. We will find out later this man is God, the angel of the Lord. He is God himself. I don't know about you, but I've heard this story since I was a child. Did you ever wonder why God would wrestle Jacob all night when he as God had the power with a a simple touch with his figurative pinky, if he had one, would have knocked out Jacob for the count? Was Jacob really that strong? That he would able that, that he would be able to outlast God in a wrestling match all night? Or did God want Jacob to think that he was strong, but he really wasn't, and for him to teach him a lesson? The fact that Jacob was wrestling God is befitting his character. One who loved to struggle with people to gain the advantage, the grabber of heels as his name means, and this physical altercation was consistent with his character. Jacob wanted to be on top. And so God put up with it all night. Again, if I were in God's place, which I am not, I would have settled this matter quickly. I I have no time for people like Jacob. But God wanted to redeem Jacob. And he wrestled with Jacob all night when one second would have been sufficient to teach Jacob a great lesson. In our own lives, we are the same way. We struggle and fight with God, not wanting to cede any ground to God. And we wonder why God doesn't put us in our place in a second or two. But He is so patient. He wants to redeem us. He wants to give us chance after chance to change our lives, to learn the lesson that we need to learn, to let us tussle for a bit, but then to show himself strong, that while we may think we are strong, we really are weak. It is him who is omnipotent, all-powerful. Perhaps it's a bit like this. When my boys were much younger, toddlers in their age, I would often take both boys into my bed and I would wrestle with them. We would horse around. I'd let them climb all over me. I would tell them to jump on me and try to pin me down. And I'd pretend to let them win as they would indeed pin me down. And daddy couldn't move. 
they would jump on my back, they would jump on my stomach, and they would exclaim, we beat daddy, we beat daddy. I would let them, of course. Now, I know if I really wanted to, I could put a stop to this very quickly. I could have won very easily and and pinned them down, but I wanted to let them have their fun. But I didn't want them to go to bed thinking that they could indeed beat me. So after wrestling with them all night, what would I do? Right before they went to bed and I sent them off to bed, I would pin them down. I would grab them and then hold them down. And in one second, I won. And they would say, Daddy, Daddy, let us go. And I would say, who won? They'd try to say they did. But I wouldn't let them go until they said that Daddy won. And finally, when they acknowledged, yes, Daddy, you are stronger. Daddy, you are the winner. Then I would let them go and say, don't you ever forget that. I think that's what God is doing here with Jacob. God can win at any time. But he wants Jacob to come to this understanding on his own. Look at verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. When God realized that Jacob the fighter, who trusted in his own strength, would not seize in his struggle and continued to wrestle, perhaps Jacob kept thinking, I can do this, I can, I can wrestle God all night. The time had come to teach him a great lesson and to end this fight. And the Bible tells us God touched the hip joint of Jacob and put out his socket as they were wrestling. Instant pain must have shot down through his body as Jacob must have collapsed. If you've ever experienced separating your shoulder or having any joints pop out, you will know the excruciating pain Jacob would have felt. He would have collapsed on the ground. God wins this so-called wrestling match in an instant. God is showing His absolute power, His omnipotence. You can say that God plays to win, and He always wins. Remember that first power game? I'm stronger than you. Well, the Almighty God says, I can play this game with you guys. I am the strongest by far. I always win. That makes me the most powerful Don't ever equate God's patience with us, allowing us to perhaps think in our minds that we have control of our lives, mean that He's ever out of control or that we are in full control. Don't ever underestimate God. God is omnipotent. There is no one stronger than Him. That is our first principle. Don't underestimate God. He is omnipotent. There is no one stronger than Him. And so when He wants to play this power game with us, and He plays to win, just one touch will show Himself strong. Look at verse 26 with me. And He said, let me go, for the day breaks. But He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because Jacob's hip socket was out of joint, he could barely stand. Jacob knew that somehow this person who he wrestled had done something supernatural, and so he he clung on to God for his support. 
And God was toying with Jacob a bit and he said, let go of me. As if casting him on the ground. Let go of me. You wrestled me. You lost. I'm walking away. But note what Jacob said. I will not let you go. I need you. I can't even stand without you. Here is a picture of a man told in words for a man who has lived all of his life independent and trusted in himself and now needing God to lean upon. It's a wonderful picture. You see, before this incident, Jacob grabbed onto no one. He depended upon himself. He leaned upon no one. He was as shrewd and as cunning as they come. He was able to best his father Isaac. He was able to beat his brother Esau. He was able to have the final say in his fight with Uncle Laban and all of his other cousins and others perhaps he took advantage of. But now we have Jacob who needed no one before literally clinging on, grabbing on to God, and would not let go of God. In many ways, God was his crutch. He had to lean upon, cling on to God, just to be able to stand up. I like what Chuck Swindoll once wrote. It is not until the pride of our heart is shattered that we will begin to understand the deep things of God. The shattering and the bruising are so designed by God for the preparation of His spokesman. I think God had to wrestle with Jacob and to have Jacob think that he could best God for a second as he wrestled with God all night. And he needed Jacob to come to his own realization that he needed God. You see, the problem of a lot of Christians today is that in our heads we affirm that God is all-powerful and we need Him. But in reality, we're like Jacob. We believe in God. We believe in His power, but it's an off-and-on relationship. We only trust God when we need Him. It is only when someone comes to an acknowledgement that they have to lean for the rest of their life upon the living Almighty God that it begins to change their life. Instead of paying lip service to God, that yes, God, we trust you, you're all-powerful, sometimes God has to bring us onto a journey where He shatters us so that we can fully trust Him, leading not on our own understanding, leading not on our own powers, but leading upon solely the power of God. One of the biggest problems that inhibits our walk with God is our overt self-sufficiency. Now, there's nothing wrong with having confidence. This is a wonderful thing to have. But too much self-confidence leads to self-sufficiency. I can do it by myself, which then leads to pride, which then draws us away from God. That's the problem of many Christians and non-Christians, often more so in our Asian culture. You know the classic Asian thought, if I work hard and I have a great education, I will do well in life. If my life is a mess, if I am not rich, it's probably because you're lazy or I'm lazy. 
and you didn't work hard enough, well, this pandemic has thrown this formula away. The most hardworking person, the most well-educated person is being affected even by this pandemic economically and in other ways. Remember the second power game? It's the game, who do you know? God says, I don't care if you know everyone, it doesn't matter. Unless you know me, unless you have a personal relationship with me, the Lord of all, then you won't have success, much less power. In fact, this theme is repeated throughout Scripture. Jesus' own words in John chapter 15, verse 5. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Let me repeat that last phrase. Apart from the Lord, you and I can do nothing. I think this is what Jacob realizes when he says, I will not let go of you. I want to cling on to you. I will not let go of you unless you bless me. Now that seems like a threat from a man who is in no position to negotiate with God. But I don't believe that is what is being said here. Loosely translated, Jacob is saying, I will not let go of you physically unless you promise to help me. I can't let go of you. I need you. I need you to physically, emotionally, spiritually help me before I dare leave you. And it is this acknowledgement from Jacob that now God has him where he wants him in a position of dependence, a position of dependence. Here's our second principle. There is only one we need to know and to know well, and that is God himself. If knowing people brings power to our lives, then there is only one we need to know and to know well, and that is God himself. Jacob was going to cross the Jabbok, and crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, a very powerful man. And he may pay lip service to God and, said, and say, you know, I trust you, God. But God wanted Jacob, before he entered the promised land, to lean fully and depend fully on him. And so that's why God did what he did and crippled him. To show Jacob that there's only one person that he can depend on, and that is the Lord God. Verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. God asked Jacob, What is your name? Jacob replies, Jacob. Now, what a silly question to ask, you may think. God knew what Jacob's name was. Why did God even ask? I think God wanted Jacob to say his name. Perhaps God wanted Jacob to recognize what his name meant, who he was before. He was a heel catcher. He was a heel grabber, always trying to pull ahead, to pull people down so that he can be pulled up. Right? You got to push people down, the corporate world tells us, so that you can move up to get ahead. And that's what Jacob was doing all throughout his life, pushing people down so that he could pull on ahead. God wanted Jacob to see his problems, to acknowledge who he was, 
and his need for change. And sometimes, my friends, we have to know who we really are, warts and all. We need to know that we are sinners. We need to acknowledge that we have problems so that we can begin to work on our lives and to improve our lives. You know, there are a lot of people who think they're good enough. That's why they never grow up in spiritual maturity. There are so many Christians out there who who don't believe they need to come to church, whether virtually or physically. They don't need to worship God. Oh, I'm, I'm just happy to be a Christian. I don't need to really grow in Christ. I'm going to heaven anyways. These are the people who think they can make it through the week without reading God's Word or praying. These are really people who trust in themselves. And they blame everyone for their, perhaps, lack of spiritual growth. But they never look at themselves. They never see their own need to change. It's everyone else's fault. It's never theirs. And so God asked Jacob, what's your name? And perhaps I can envision it with a head bowed a little lower, having been humbled and now crippled, this once proud man who had gone through life always on top, says his name is Jacob, perhaps a little bit unsure about his own abilities now. This acknowledgement through name recall is where God wanted Jacob to be. Verse 28, look what happens. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. God told Jacob, You shall have a new name. It will be Israel. First time that word is used in the Bible. And the word Israel means Yisrael, God fights. That would serve two meanings for Jacob. First, it meant that God chose because of Jacob's perhaps stubbornness and pride to fight against him and won. And second, Israel would remind him that from now on, Jacob, who is weak and crippled, would have someone else fighting on behalf of him. He didn't need to fight anymore. God would fight for him. Yisrael, God fights on your behalf. Jacob now has a new name, which reflects his new identity and purpose. He will never be the same again, because Jacob is to be reminded that he can fully rely on God because God fights on his behalf. God will do the fighting for him. He can just rely on his strength. Verse 29 to 30. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you should ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Surprisingly, Jacob asked God his holy name. Perhaps this is a last bit of effort on Jacob's part to assert his right. Hey, God, you you asked me my name. I'm going to ask you what yours is. But God does not give him a reply. God doesn't answer him. Perhaps Jacob wanted to assert a bit of control in the situation, which he's utterly lost control of. But God replied, Why is it that you ask my name? How dare you ask my name? And God, at that point, puts Jacob, Israel, in his place. 
And Jacob does not ask again. God blesses him. God reminded Jacob, I'm not controlled by anyone. I don't have to answer to you. Another nail to remind Jacob that God is not to be controlled. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, which literally means face of God. He writes, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. God has come as close to Jacob as was imaginable. And Jacob now knew where he stood in the pecking order of things and that was quite low. He now knew or perhaps came to the realization that God could have killed him with one touch while he wrestled with him. It could have happened early in the evening, not all night, he allowed Jacob to wrestle. But instead... God, by His grace, preserved His life, gave Him a new name, a new life. Here's principle number three. Your identity is not what you own, but who you are in the Lord. Your identity is not what you own, but who you are in the Lord. Remember power game number three? Look at all of my resources. Look at all that I own. That's the game we often play. If I own a lot, that means I have significance in this life. But the Bible tells us, no, our identity is not in what you own. Jacob, you've got a lot of stuff that you're heading back home with. But that is not who defines you. Who defines you is who you are in the Lord. In our context, who we are in Christ. That's why God gave Jacob a new name. You shall be called Israel. You shall be now called Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Not that you won, Jacob. But you prevail only because I fight on your behalf. Verse 31 to 32. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him. And he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle, that shank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. God gave Jacob, or Israel, a new beginning. God is now on the seat of power in Jacob's life, because in him is the source of all power and strength. In the new beginning for Jacob's life, God is now in the seat of power. I can't think of a more beautiful picture painted in words as verse 31 tells us. Here Jacob, who is resting God all night, began that evening physically strong, trusted in his own ability, a fighter. Now, at the break of day, he walks with a limp, and will do so for the rest of his life. But the picture is that of a new beginning. What does the Bible say? The sun rose over him. He was not riding into the sunset. He was beginning a new life. A new life he had where God is in the seat of power. He's limping, but that's okay. God fights on his behalf. The New Testament reminds us of the same thing when we place our trust in Jesus Christ 
as our personal Savior, and we extol Him as Lord over our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jacob greeted the new day, having suffered a great defeat in the hands of God. But I believe there was great joy in his heart because now he realized he didn't have to rely on his own power and strength. He literally was limping, but now he could trust in God. And for sure his family would ask why when they left him the night before, he was walking just fine, and now he was limping. And he would tell them about the night he wrestled with God and lost. And so it is, my friend, the reason we talk about power games in families and amongst your friends is to remind us that it is a silly game because the source of all power is in the Lord. And when we acknowledge that, then I hope it reminds us to stop playing those games which cause so much dysfunction and so much messiness in life because God's going to win every time, always at the end. You yourself may be wrestling God over who has control over your life, who is more powerful. You might as well give up now before He has to touch your figurative hip socket and cause you to collapse. Because the Bible reminds us that He fights on our behalf. We don't need to fight Him. If you let the Lord win the power game, you will end up winning as well. If you lose to others in the power game so that Christ can win, you will also win as well. And so really for the Christian, it is a win-win situation as long as we know how to play the game. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder from the life of Jacob. We thank you that you showed Jacob who was really in control and really in power. It is a good reminder even for me. It is a good reminder for us. For those of us who are playing the power game in our family units and amongst our friends, for those of us who have caused great dysfunction because of this, I pray that you would allow us to stop playing, allow you to win so that we will win as well. May the Holy Spirit continue to convict each of us as you so lay in our hearts what we are to do in application of this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.